in the beginning. And I said last week that how a story begins um, is vitally important. It makes clear who is important, and it helps us understand what matters. Um, And really, the beginning of a story sets the tone, the trajectory for the rest of the story. And one of the unmistakable patterns in the beginning of our story, which we find in Genesis 1, uh, it goes like this. This is one of the, the patterns that we hear repeated in that first chapter. And God said, and it was, and God saw that it was good. And God said, and it was, and God saw that it was good. And God said, and it was, and God saw that it was good. Genesis 1 is a story of profound goodness. Light emerges where there was only darkness. Order is established where there was only chaos. God creates expansive and exponential life. There's unimaginable diversity and beauty that stops you in your tracks. And there's relationship in Genesis 1. Everywhere, among everything, there is connection and interdependence. Six times, in fact, uh, the text of Genesis 1 tells us that God saw that it was good, and at the end of Genesis 1, really actually at the start of chapter 2, when God has finished creating everything, we find God declaring that all of creation is very good. Again, Genesis 1 is a story of profound goodness, but this, this isn't goodness um, as, as in, hey, dinner tonight was pretty good. You know, that's, that's not the kind of goodness when God looks and says, oh, yeah, that's good. This is something much more. And I think maybe we get a clue of this if we tune into something that's going on in the text uh, that we might not spot at first or, or might not recognize it for what it means. And, and that's the use of seven here. Um, this is not like the, uh, the Da Vinci Code sort of secret stuff that I'm now revealing to you. Um, sorry, I don't have possess that knowledge. Um, this is, a seven is something in the ancient world, in the, in the Near Eastern world, that would have just been common to have, have known and be understood as a number that represents completeness. So something is complete, it is whole, um, when seven is involved. I don't know the history or how that came to be, uh, the way that things were seen, but this was quite common. So, of course, in this story, we have how many days? We have seven days. That's, that's an easy one to spot. There are also these seven declarations of creation being good, seven of those. Seven times in Genesis 1, God names something. And then we get into some other areas, which again, we, we wouldn't know unless uh, we knew Hebrew and were just for the fun of it counting. But, you know, scholars point out that um, in verse 1, 
seven Hebrew words are used. And at the seventh day, there are 35 Hebrew words used. Seven times five is 35. So not only is seven a number of completion, but any multiple of seven is viewed as that. And in fact, God's name is mentioned 35 times, seven times five. Again, this is not Da Vinci Code sort of stuff. This is just, oh, interesting. The writer here is trying to communicate something. Trying to certainly tell anyone in the ancient audience what's going on, what's happening. And we just may need to kind of get clued into it. That this is a story of completeness and wholeness. Goodness in that sense, in that fullest sense. God saw everything that God had made, and indeed, it was very good. Now, what God does next after that is quite interesting, I think. We, we've probably heard it before. I'm still getting used to, like, navigating paper in the windy conditions that we're in here. But you know what God does after God creates for six days? God rests. That's right. This is what it says in chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. And by the seventh day, God had finished the work that God had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all his work. And then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Anybody here ever completed a big project? Anybody? At home, yes, some of you. Most of you, though, apparently have never completed a big project. Interesting. Okay, there's okay, some more coming. Uh, what happens when you are done with this thing that's taken you maybe days or weeks or maybe months even? What is the feeling you have when the project is over the work is done, and you are kind of standing back looking at it. How do you feel? Yahoo. <laughs> that was awesome. Yahoo. Yeah. What else? What's that? Nap time? Yeah. Time to rest. Time to take a nap. Very good. Well, what's next? Yeah. We might kind of wonder, all right, so this is done. What are we going to do now? It's good. Yeah. Hopefully, right? We get to the end of the project and go, it's good. Yeah. And not like, oh, dinner is good tonight. No, like, wow, this is, this is really quite something. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's um, a yahoo-ness to it. I like that, Deb. That may be helpful here. I think we read about, you know, God resting and then God blessing. And I don't know, does it feel dry to you? I don't know that it has to be. What if God yahoos at the end of it all? What if God takes great delight and joy in looking at it and saying, wow, this is, this is good? It's an interesting thought to think that God might be pleased or God might be delighted. And then one question I ask as I think about that is, well, what makes God pleased? Why is God delighted? Why might God yahoo at creation? And I, I can't help but think that part of the reason why God might be delighted is because when God looks at creation, God sees 
just intricate uh, uh, through and through connections and relationship within creation itself. Everything in creation is a part of a web of relationship. On the one hand, nothing in creation can exist without God. We're all created beings who find our beginning in a creator, and nothing can exist without each other. This is such an obvious point, but I'm going to say it anyway (laughs) because I think we forget Everything in creation relies on everything else. Nothing exists without light. Can you imagine? But light alone isn't enough. And so God does something with the waters. And light and water are great, but they're not enough alone. And so there's land and earth and dirt. And that's great, but it's not enough. So then there's seeds and trees and plants that feed, and those are great, but they're not enough. There need to be animals to pollinate and help propagate. And so you see pretty quickly that everything in creation is reliant on everything else. Our very existence depends on our connections to each other. And this is how God seems to have designed it, to make everything inextricably linked together. And I think there are signs of just how connected we are everywhere. Have you ever noticed how much we talk about the weather as human beings? Why do we do that? This has always intrigued me. I suppose on the one hand, it's low-hanging conversational fruit. It's easy to talk about. It's something everyone can comment on. But I've always thought that there's something more going on. That the reason we're always talking about the weather is because we are creatures who are deeply and fundamentally connected to the creation. Or, stay with weather for a moment, Why is it that last Sunday, which you may remember or not, was really gray and rainy? Why do gray and rainy days make us gray and rainy (laughs) inside, you know, often? How is it that on the first warm day of spring, like the, your neighborhood erupts and all of a sudden you you realize people are actually living in this neighborhood as everyone's outside, moving around, energized, excited? Why? Why does that happen? We know it happens. Why does it happen? I would say it's because we're deeply connected to creation. Or why when you're near a beach, maybe on vacation, or if you're lucky enough to live near a lakeshore, why at sunset does everyone flock to the beach? To see something we've seen a hundred times? Why? Wouldn't that just get old? But it doesn't. Or maybe it, maybe it does to you. I don't know. It, 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 it doesn't to me. And it's just always intriguing when we're near a beach and all of a sudden there's just these throngs of people making their way to catch the sunset. Or you're out hiking 
and you come through a pass and you get this view that allows you to see for miles and you stop. Why do you stop? Why do our road commissions build scenic overlooks on the highway? Why did we de decide to invest tax dollars to create spaces for us to pull off the road and get out and look at something? Why do we do that? How is it that pets bring us joy and companionship? How is it that good food makes our mouth explode with delight? These are all things that are so everyday that maybe we don't ever think about why they happen, why they're true. And I'm suggesting to you that they are true, that these things happen and so many other things because we are deeply, intimately connected to creation. The world is a world where everything is inextricably linked. And not just in the sense of survival, although that's true, but also in the sense of delight and wonder. And yet, I think it has become easier and easier to forget our connectedness. To be disconnected from creation. Because today, someone can spend their entire existence living in a temperature-controlled environment, right? We flip a switch and we have light, no matter the hour, no matter what the sun is doing or not doing. We can travel enormous distances without ever interacting with the earth over which we move. Water comes out at the flip of a lever. Food arrives at our doorstep with the swipe of a finger. It's possible to go your whole life and never experience the joy of a harvest or to think about the personal connection you have to the meat that you're eating. On and on it goes. And listen, I'm not trying to say that air conditioning is bad. You and I, if you have it, we'll have it on this week when it's 98 degrees, all right? And we will be thankful for it, and we should be. I'm not saying that cars are bad or lights are bad or that getting your groceries delivered is bad. That's not the point that I'm making or that Genesis 1 is making. I'm not saying you should go and live in northwest Idaho off the grid, right? If I, if I say that that's what you should do, we're in cult territory and you need, to, you need to interact, okay? We need an intervention if that's what I'm suggesting that you do. Because that's not the point. It's not the point. The point I want to make and what I want to invite you to consider is that at this moment in history, it's just really easy to live disconnected from creation. That's the point I want to invite you to consider. And that with that being the case, there are some real potential consequences. I think when we forget how connected we are, when we live disconnected from creation, uh, there's something that's incomplete, that's not good. And on that little sheet uh, you have on the back, kind of my mental sketch this week as I was you know, thinking about this sermon and, and thinking about Genesis 1, that when we're disconnected from creation, I think we potentially become disconnected from our call. We'll talk more about that next week. 
But the other possibility is that we actually become disconnected from God. I've got a quote there on that page from Henry Nouwen, who's a Catholic priest, professor, writer. I I love Nouwen. He's been important to my development. He once said that the first language of God is nature. Think about that for a moment. The the first language of God is nature. And that nature discloses itself to those with eyes to see and ears to hear what the great spirit of God is saying to us. Wow. Now, Nowen did not like create this idea or come up with it on his own. He's just repeating what others before him have said and what Scripture itself declares. This is Psalm 19. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The skies display his craftsmanship. Day after day they continue to speak. Night after night they make him known. For now, and the question was this. Not, not is creation speaking to us, not does creation have something to say to us, but do we have eyes and ears to hear it? And then another quote on that sheet from Augustine, probably one of the most important theologians of his time. I don't always agree with Augustine, but I don't always agree with anybody, you know, so hey. Um, and Augustine certainly, whether... I always agree with him or not is unimportant. He just kind of factually was one of the most influential philosophers and theologians of his time. He wrote this. He said that God reveals God's self to us through two contemporary means, the book of nature and the book of scripture. Is that interesting? That there are two books through which we learn about God, the book of Scripture and the book of nature. Now, all of my Christian upbringing, and I've had a lot, I've only heard about one book. And it's not that the communities that I grew up in were anti-nature. That's not it, really. But no one said to me, hey, Chris, if you want to know God, if you want to understand God, then you should read the Bible and go for a hike. No one, no one ever said that to me. You should ruminate on the scriptures and garden. No one ever said that to me. Learn about some aspect of creation, Chris. Take a walk through your neighborhood. Play in the park. Watch a documentary about the earth. Learn, understand, appreciate, study this book of nature, and you'll understand God. What's so interesting is that the Bible says uh, that this is exactly what happens. When we study the book of nature, we, we get a glimpse of who God is. Romans 1.20 says uh, this, Since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky, and through everything God made, they can clearly see God's invisible qualities, God's eternal power, and divine nature. In other words, stay connected to God's creation and you will stay connected to the Creator. Now some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, are you telling me that I have to move to Idaho and go off the grid? No, that's not what I'm saying. I want to be very clear. 
nor am I saying that you have to become some, I don't know, what, what's the, what's the uh, negative, isn't this interesting, we kind of create these terms to uh, criticize or critique people like tree huggers or granola-y people, right? I'm not, I have no formula for you to follow about how to live this out. But I do think there might be something here for us to think carefully about for a moment. You know, what would it mean for us to study the book of nature and in studying that book become connected to the one who made all that we know and see? How might we do that? How might we study the book of nature? Well, there's maybe lots of ways to do it. I imagine there are. One might be to follow God's lead and to delight in something about creation. It might be as simple as taking a walk, but doing so with a purpose and with an intention. It might mean getting out of our conditioned spaces or walking instead of driving or learning more about the food that we eat or growing some of our own food or 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 lots and lots and lots of options are we connected to the creation have we forgotten our connection and what might it mean to reconnect and in reconnecting not just to creation also reconnecting to god Again, Henry Nouwen says that the first language of God is nature. So I want to invite us here as we close this time to, um, to listen for that language. Do you, how many of you still have that thing that you grabbed earlier? You, a lot of you might still have that. Uh, I'm going to give you a little bit of time here, like right now. Feel free to get up. If you'd like to get something different or you didn't grab something at the beginning of the morning, just get up. Right now, go and, and do it. I'm going to grab another clover here. Um, I have probably a thousand of these in my backyard. Um, I've never looked at them closely until this morning. <laughs> I've seen them lots. I've never looked at them closely, at least not closely enough to see this. It's hard with my eyesight. But if I work really hard, these intricate green little loops about two-thirds of the way down every petal. It's stunning, this very common and from a distance bland sort of white flower is wildly intricate. I want you to grab whatever you might need to grab or if you don't have something in your hand to just maybe look around or listen. or smell. And then let me ask you, what, what does the thing that you're holding or the thing that you're hearing or seeing or smelling, what might it tell you about God? 
What might it point you toward? What might it remind you of or teach you about? One of the great gifts is that if you are a bit disconnected from creation, you, the good news is you do not have to go far to reconnect. <laughs> the clover in your backyard. Shoot, you can just look out your window if that's all you have the time or ability to do. What do you see? Everywhere we look, there are these reminders, these incredible signposts, these gifts of creation that are proclaiming all sorts of things to us. And so as you keep holding this thing in your hand or maybe thinking about something, we're going to invite you to both listen and sing with us.